My name is Jasmine. I'm your host of Rebuilding Government, a podcast about the crisis of trust in government and the brilliant people rebuilding it in its wake. Today, I'm talking to Rohan Pavaluri, founder and CEO of Upsolve. Despite being started only three years ago, Upsolve is already the largest bankruptcy nonprofit in the United States, serving 10 times as many people as the next largest organization. How do they do this? By scaling complex paperwork with the power of the internet, Upsolve helps low-income Americans file for Chapter 7 bankruptcy for free. The online service eliminates a process that used to cost $1,000 in legal fees, while also providing all sorts of online financial education to their visitors. Keep listening to hear our conversation on why bankruptcy matters so much, fundraising in the nonprofit world, and how Rohan is rebuilding government. Hi, Rohan. How are you? Hi, Jasmine. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, I'm super glad to talk about Upsolve. Um, so before we actually get into what Upsolve is um, and how you started that, I was actually interested, since you're a pretty young founder, how was your political consciousness shaped and how did you become interested in things related to government? For sure. So uh, I went to high school in New Hampshire and it's kind of impossible to not be exposed to retail politics when you're in New Hampshire and there are so many state representatives, over 400 state representatives for such a small state and you have presidential candidates coming every election cycle. So uh, I was just immediately inundated with candidates and campaigns uh, throughout my uh, high school experience and, and before that um, had actually spent a summer working for the office uh, or for, for Illinois Governor Pat Quinn. Uh, so Illinois and Chicago in particular, uh, politics definitely very much of a contact sport. And uh, when I was sort of uh, growing up, I was around the same time where uh, President Obama became a national phenomenon that he is as well. And uh, coming from Chicago, uh, it's kind of impossible not to get really excited about your senator and somebody who uh, was from your city becoming uh, this uh, world fair. So uh, it was a combination of uh, me coming into like adulthood during the same time that Obama was running for president, being in a state where people were uh, always campaigning uh, for office, and uh, and, the, and the fact that uh, in in. In high school, for me, I really thought that public policy was the main way that people could make a big difference in the world. It was a really inspiring way to make a big difference in the world. So it's a combination of these factors that made me really think, hey, like politics and government are such an amazing lever to help improve people's lives. Absolutely. So you mentioned at the very end there that you used to see it mostly as impact direct was derived directly from public policy. So when was it that you started to see opportunities for nonprofits like Upsolve or technologists to do work around politics and government? So for sure, like uh, when I got to college, I still thought changing laws was the only way that as an individual you could reach a lot of people because if you change a law overnight you can if the law is good uh really help a lot of people and i realized uh through uh watching all of these uh kids who were, who were my peers in college uh who were starting startups and who were getting really excited about computer science that technology actually had a very similar role in society to public policy in the sense that as an individual if you built a software product or even hardware and you released it into the wild, 
it had this potential to rapidly scale uh, with very low marginal costs. And I saw an analog between releasing a software product into the masses and changing a law. Both had the opportunity to help a lot of people overnight. But the problem that I saw was that most people who were working on software were really thinking about how to make rich companies richer or rich people richer. And nobody was really focusing on how to build software products to address low-income communities in the United States and really help the people who are left out of technological innovation. And uh, that's what really inspired me to apply the same passion that I had for public policy uh, in, uh, to technology. And you founded Upsolve, or you at least started working on it during undergrad, is that correct? Yeah, my uh, sophomore summer is when uh, I, I started working on Upsolve. Wow, okay. So could you tell me a little bit about that process and how you realized that it could be a real organization, something the world really needed? Absolutely. So when I was uh, at Harvard, I was spending a lot of time at the Access to Justice Lab at Harvard Law School because I thought uh, I definitely wanted to go to law school when I was in college. So I I just went to the law school and basically took one of the first uh, jobs that I found, uh, which was a research assistant uh, helping this Access to Justice Lab design self-help packets for people to solve their own legal problems. And this exposed me to this huge civil rights injustice in America, that if you're a low-income family, you can't access the same rights as everyone else because you can't afford the lawyer that you need in order to access those rights. And I thought this was such a terrible thing, and it made me so angry that people were left out of our legal system, whether they needed a restraining order against an abusive spouse, whether they needed to fight back when they were evicted from their home, whether they were sued for their debt, or whether they needed access to bankruptcy after a financial shock, they couldn't get their rights because they couldn't afford the fee that they needed to pay someone who would help them access those rights. And I thought, not only was that unjust uh, and unfair, but it undermined the American democracy. So, uh, So I was really excited when the professor who I was working with, his name is Jim Greiner, he said, hey, uh, it's okay if you want to think about how to scale these uh, packets, these physical paper packets that we're working on with technology. So that's when I moved to Brooklyn in June of 2016 um, for the summer and then ended up actually taking a semester off from school to figure out whether there was an opportunity to use technology to help low-income families solve their own legal problems without having to pay for an attorney. And what was the solution that you ended up on? So first I had to choose what area of the law I wanted to focus on. And I chose bankruptcy because, uh, number one, bankruptcy has such a huge quantifiable impact on the families that it helps. Uh, and people who file for bankruptcy do so as a result of losing their job or a medical bill or uh, a predatory loan. So bankruptcy can really rehabilitate low-income families who face these financial shocks that could happen to anyone and, uh, and stop problems before they got worse. Because when you you fall into debt, you can be trapped in poverty, go hungry, go homeless. And bankruptcy is a tool to stop these problems um, from happening uh, and help people get back on their feet. So that was the first reason I chose bankruptcy. The second was uh, it was a federal law. So uh, what I was working on in New York, I could also apply to um, every state across the country. 
And that was really appealing. And that's a really hard thing about trying to simplify government is there's so many different state by state, county by county differences. And with bankruptcy, there are pretty minimal differences. Um, and then the third thing that I figured out was that there was a group of people who had simple cases that if you gave them the right software tool, they could actually get through this complicated legal process on their own without having to pay for an attorney. And uh, these were people who were low-income families without assets, who had simple cases where they, had, they did not have the $1,500, $2,000 for a lawyer. They were $50,000 in debt. Um, in the words of actually one of our first users, uh, if, I kind of, if I had that money uh, to pay a lawyer, I wouldn't have been bankrupt in the first place. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. right? so, so, uh, so, so those are some of the things that, that figured out in the summer of 2016 um, and ultimately landed on a software uh, web application, um, online web app, not too different from TurboTax um, in the way it works, where you provide information about your personal finances, um, we pull your creditor data, and then we populate your bankruptcy forms that are then reviewed by one of our attorneys before you file them with the court uh, on your own. Yeah, for sure. Um, and so one, one thing I was wondering about was um, if you could tell me a little bit more about the process of user research and designing the product, because I know that um, when you're comparing the design of a computer product or sorry, the design of a consumer product to one in the legal industry or one that has to do with government, a lot of times the consumer product, you can focus on a quite narrow market. Whereas when you're designing government services, they have to be something that works for literally everyone in all of these edge cases that we might not think about if we don't hold certain identities or certain life situations. Absolutely. So we've really followed the Y Combinator mantra of do things that don't scale um, when we were starting out. For the entire first year, we, there was really not much to do with technology. We were just running a brick and mortar legal aid clinic where people would come into our office one at a time as we were helping them. For our first 10 fines, uh, we just filled out the forms for them as they were sitting and giving us their information and sitting next to them. Uh, I spent uh, basically every day in June of 2016, going to the bankruptcy courthouse and uh, every day talking to the security guards, talking to the clerks, talking to the lawyers, talking to people who would just file for bankruptcy, having a deep understanding of what got them there and what was going through their mind. I ended up taking some of our first users out to lunch. Uh, I went to church with one of our users. I uh, ended up calling um, courthouses and legal aid organizations asking to talk to people on their wait lists. I would go to the Queens and we were based in Brooklyn and I went to Queens, Bronx, um, Manhattan, uh, and just went to courthouses where people de dealt with other problems like housing problems and problems with being sued for their debt and just started asking them about whether they had considered bankruptcy and what they knew about bankruptcy and how they looked for help. So I really have this thesis that when things don't work out um, as, a, uh, as a founder, uh, oftentimes it's because you didn't get to know the problems that your users were facing well enough. And I really did not want that to be me. So I really over-invested. I don't think there's such thing as over-investing in doing this research um, into our users' needs. Yeah, that's, that's super cool um, to see how deeply you went. So could you elucidate then, like what are some of the biggest causes of uh, chapter seven bankruptcies and 
is that breakdown of causes pretty representative of Upsolve's users? Absolutely. So uh, the biggest reasons people file for bankruptcy in America are a single financial shock that drives them into debt, and it's unexpected. The biggest cause is medical bills. So there is a medical illness that people have to uh, pay the bills for. Maybe they don't have enough insurance, or insurance doesn't cover certain procedures, or they don't have insurance, um, or they have to stop working as a result of a, uh, uh, an unexpected medical shock, and that drives them into debt. So it's a really tragic thing that because of our lack of social safety net in America, people who fall into this shock uh, end up in debt that they can't escape. Other reasons are job loss. Uh, people lose their jobs. And then if you lose your job and you can't find a new job for six months, um, you can fall into tens of thousands of dollars of debt and you need to borrow in order to put food on the table for your kids. Um, and you need to uh, put a uh, uh, roof over their heads. Uh, so that's what drives people into debt as well. There's also predatory loans. Uh, I heard a really moving story in 2018 from one of our early users where he was kicked out of his home from in high school from his parents. Uh, his, er, his dad kicked him out. His mom, who was supporting him um, uh, and paying his rent, ended up uh, dying tragically in a car accident. And then uh, he actually got a $50,000 uh, pre-qualified predatory loan that he ended up taking out. And because that was his only option in order to cover um, expenses uh, for himself. And he ended up uh, falling into so much debt that he was homeless. And also he attempted suicide because of his debt. And fortunately, uh, he was able to get out of the hospital and uh, he found a guidance counselor, pointed him towards Upsolve. Now he's a job as a security guard. Uh, and, uh, his name is Abed, he's from Queens. And uh, powerful stories like this really uh, uh, show that debt has so many different causes that are interconnected, whether it's some family issue, whether it's homelessness, whether it's predatory loan combined with a financial shock combined with a family tragedy. So um, there, there really are these complex causes of debt, but uh, almost always uh, we've seen that it's because of a discrete financial shock. Yeah, that's a really that's a really tragic story, but it's good to see that he got back on his feet and has has a great job now. Absolutely, and he's actually learning to code on, on the weekends. Which really? Is cool. Oh yeah. wow! Okay, <laughs> that's a lot more initiative than I have around learning <laughs> to code. <laughs> okay, um, so the way that you talked about uh, shocks is really interesting because so i i work at a I work at a company that basically tries to predict the impact of natural disasters. And we're always thinking about resilience and resilience in the sense of when a natural disaster comes, it's not just that it wreaks havoc uh, during the event or immediately after the event when it injures people or kills a building, but the fact that it is a shock to the financial system and the economy and all of these people um, who previously might have been running small businesses or doing other things, that's all disrupted. And that's why the vast majority of small businesses never, ever recover after a natural disaster hits them, especially if they don't have things like insurance. Wow. Yeah, no, totally. Uh, I mean, see shocks that can really wipe out people's lives. And uh, our founding fathers understood that bankruptcy 
is in the Constitution. Really? Uh, Yes. And it's actually one of the defining characteristics, I'd say, about the American democracy. Because before bankruptcy, the alternatives when you were in debt were prison or actually, in some cases, death. So the fact that the people who founded this country understood that uh, when you're in debt and you face adverse circumstances, you deserve this second chance. And they believe in it so much so that they incorporated it into our founding document uh, of this country. I think is just so demonstrative of the fact that bankruptcy is part of the American identity. And, uh, and really, everyone deserves to have the second chance um, after these financial shocks that could happen to any, anyone else. For sure. So um, along those lines, do you know whether in other countries is the bankruptcy system similar? I'm just curious. Uh, so I, I actually I don't know so much about it. Uh, I did have a chance to talk to uh, some people from uh, uh, India, some government officials recently uh, facilitated by the World Bank. They're actually looking at the American bankruptcy system right now uh, as a model. So um, that's inspiring. Uh, and I do know that in the United Kingdom and in Canada, there are uh, bankruptcy systems where people are able to forgive their debt. Uh, but uh, I don't I, I don't know so deeply um, about what their systems look like. Okay, yeah, no problem. I was just wondering because seeing that it's so baked into um, the founding of the U.S., I was wondering if it's a... Well, a lot of countries don't have this concept. Yeah, a lot of countries do not have this concept of a second chance after financial shocks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's great that y'all are um, able to provide that. So uh, another clarification point is yes. Upsolve just for individuals or is it also for businesses? Uh, so a lot of individuals who own businesses are able to, or who have owned business in the past and fallen into debt are able to file for Chapter 7 bankruptcy mm-hmm. because they don't have so many assets. So we do help, we have helped business owners um, in the past and for sure solo proprietors who, uh, uh, and freelancers. Uh, but if, if you're like a small business with a lot of assets, your bankruptcy can be more complicated and Upsolve is not the best fit for you. Okay. Yeah, that, that does make sense. Um, so another thing I wanted to get into was that, of course, Upsolve and being able to file for free online um, is an amazing solution once bankruptcy affects an individual. And I know this isn't like part of the business that you're in exactly, but perhaps you have intuitions based on all of this user research and stuff for how we as a society might be able to either like really attack some of the root causes of the bankruptcy system or of bankruptcy happening or otherwise um, fix the system to make it easier for people? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, for one, uh, I do think that a stronger social safety net would really help out this country um, and more access uh, to healthcare, universal healthcare, I think, would really um, do a lot in terms of uh, helping people who face these shocks uh, and so that they don't fall into debt and don't have to dive into savings or predatory loans in order to survive. So that's at the top of my list. Uh, I also think that uh, our court system uh, could be a lot simpler. And uh, I understand that there's a reason for substantive complexity in America. And the reason we have complex laws, by and large, is in order to preserve the rights of marginalized populations and competing interest groups. That's a big part of uh, Federalist Paper number 10. 
um, is that when you have these competing interest groups, you can actually have a stronger democracy because their rights are sort of inscribed in law. Uh, I, uh, I do think, uh, however, that there is a lot of procedural complexity that does not serve substantive purposes, and uh, we should get rid of it. For example, uh, there are a lot of unnecessarily complex words um, and on, on bankruptcy forms um, and uh, on legal forms in general. Like, there is absolutely no reason, there's no substantive reason for Latin to be so heavily used within our legal system other than to, um, I mean, there's no substantive reason. One reason I do think it exists is it um, shifts power away from everyday consumers who can't afford lawyers um, to uh, the real specialized experts. And it's a way of preserving power. So I do um, think that there are so many low-hanging fruit where we get rid of procedural complexity. We can have a simpler legal system where people can access their rights um, without having to pay for fees. And, uh, and the analog that I would make is to the poll tax. In the 1920s, 30s, 40s in America, we had poll taxes that stopped people from being able to vote based on their income level. And today, we have similar structure in place where people cannot access their rights unless they pay a fee. And that's because, in, in, by and large, our legal system is so inaccessible and so complex um, unnecessarily so in some cases where you have to pay a fee to a lawyer in order to access your rights rather than being able to access them directly. Um, so, so I do think there's a lot by way of legal simplification. And I think that the complexity within our legal system today, the procedural, undue procedural complexity is a vast civil rights violation that's not part of our national dialogue. And through Upsolve, I hope to make it part of it. Right. It does seem like that's not something that is super visible whenever people are talking about like economic inequality and things like that. Um, so I know that there's some other uh, like I, I don't know if you would call them like legal tech or legal aid startups. Um, like I know there's do not pay if you're familiar with them. Yeah. I know. Yeah. 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 So um, Joshua Browder has talked quite a bit about um, how there's because of the reasons you identified, there's just too many lawyers. Um, super complex systems um, and they are obviously trying in a huge variety of ways to uh, make those processes free on an app etc so given that there's like all these systems whether it's like using Latin in forms or making it way too hard to appeal a parking ticket or whatever uh, is there like is this caused just by like loading over the years or is there some kind of like legal lobby that I've never heard about like where where does all of this come from so uh, there's definitely a reason laws are complex um, to preserve the substantive uh, like I mean r running the American society is a really hard thing and uh, and, and we definitely want laws um, in place that address um, uh, inequity and protect marginalized populations. So I do think there's a reason for some degree of legal complexity. Um, but, uh, but at the end of the day, lawyers have a monopoly on the law. And lawyers are the ones who are tasked with designing forms and designing legal processes and ultimately, by and large, writing the laws. The, there is a legal lobby. Um, I mean, lawyers are self-regulating profession. And there are bar associations across the country. Um, and the fact that lawyers uh, have a monopoly on the law means that 
Um, uh, in many cases, they've designed legal systems in which they guarantee their existence. And uh, I believe that lawyers have a role in society, um, and I admire the uh, legal profession and its ability to, to uh, defend uh, the rights of low-income communities against corporations and people who try to abuse them. Um, but at the same time, I do think that lawyers have, in many cases, written laws so that they can preserve their own financial interests and their interests as a profession. Um, and uh, as a result, low-income communities across the country uh, have not been able to navigate their legal system on their own. And ultimately, I think it's a civil rights injustice when we need um, to pay a fee in order to understand the rules that we're supposed to follow and access the rights that we're supposed to, uh, that, that, that we're entitled to. For sure, yeah, I never realized that it, it really is like the same group or industry of people like writing these laws and also um, being able to basically make money or make the career off them, which, yeah, <laughs> makes a lot of sense now. Um, so I was wondering now if you could go into what some of the limitations of Chapter 7 bankruptcy are and uh, I guess some of the things that it can't do where we might need to turn towards the other solutions that you identified. Absolutely. So. Uh... If you have a medium or high credit score, uh, filing for bankruptcy will lower your credit score, um, most likely. So it's not like people can just file for bankruptcy and expect no repercussions. There are repercussions if you have a medium or high credit score. If you have a low credit score, your credit score will actually probably improve post-bankruptcy. Um, so uh, that's number one. And, and another thing is if you have assets, um, above uh, uh, a meaningful amount, so above $10,000 is sort of a good rule of thumb. Um, there are, of course, a lot of exceptions to this, but if you have over $10,000 in assets, um, you uh, may be at risk of losing your assets um, because the court will seize them and uh, sell them uh, uh, for the benefit of your creditors. So. You can't just file for bank, go on a shopping spree, for example, um, and, and file for bankruptcy and then expect to keep uh, what, what you bought. So that's not how the system works. And, it, and I believe it shouldn't. Bankruptcy should be a last resort for people who face a financial shock and really need it. So there are uh, those limitations where, and I don't even think those are limitations as much as just um, a, the, the system that um, is just that we have in place. Uh, uh, the... The things that I will say is like uh, bankruptcy uh, really only helps people after they're in meaningful amounts of debt. So I do think that we need a system where people um, uh, can avoid debt in the first place. That's why we should rely on the social safety net. And bankruptcy, by and large, is not help people eliminate student loans. So uh, student loans are uh, uh, one of the biggest causes of debt in America. And many people take out student loans not knowing what they're getting themselves into. And uh, I think greater transparency and regulation within the student loan system is uh, imperative. And uh, I actually, I mean, at Upsolve, we certainly support um, the calls from, from uh, people um, in, in Congress to uh, make student loans part of the dischargeable debts in bankruptcy with more leniency than it is now. And why haven't they been part of the category of dischargeable debts? So I'm not exactly sure uh, the, the, the precise reason, but one thing I will point out is uh, the biggest uh, uh, 
predator uh, for student loans, I believe in America today, is, uh, if I'm not mistaken, the U.S. government. And the fact that the U.S. government is the largest creditor, uh, perhaps, um, has influenced <laughs> why uh, student loans are not dischargeable in bankruptcy. For sure. Um, yeah, that, that's a really useful clarification. I know that the Upsolve website has a ton of FAQs um, just all about the system and, and super easy to read. So I can only imagine the effort that's gone into making those. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like for us, we uh, think of ourselves as a product company, but also a media company, a media nonprofit. And um, what's really important, I think, that a lot of people uh, – who are, are first-time founders, myself included, don't appreciate is how important distribution is when you first get started. And when I was starting Upsell for our first few years, we were really only focused on building the best product out there. And that's still our number one priority today. But um, a close second is finding the best way to reach low-income communities. Because if you can have the best product in the world, but unless you figure out how to reach people, no one's going to use your product. And we've been really lucky to figure out that by producing amazing content, uh, we can uh, get indexed highly in Google search engines. And that allows us to reach people because the number one place people look when they're in debt and they need access to bankruptcy is Google. And they Google, yeah. <laughs> uh, they Google around. And, and if you win Google, you win. People will find you, and it, it's up, then it's up to you to prove to them that you have the right service available. But uh, that's why we care so much about producing great content, because it helps us um, answer users' questions and reach the top of Google search results. For sure. Um, so I wanted to pivot just a little bit to discussing um, some of the ways that you all grew, um, and also just like uh, organizational growth, scaling this, um, the kind of support in advising that Upsolve got. Um, so I guess, so you now have like quite a few uh, really big backers, whether it's big well-known names like Y Combinator, um, Angels, BlackRock, the Hewlett Foundation. So how did you initially find the key funders and support and was that challenging? I think fundraising is definitely one of the hardest parts of my job uh, and continues to be along with recruiting. Uh, so I don't, I don't know any, fun, uh, any, any founder who ever says fundraising is easy. Uh, the, but when we were starting out, um, the keys, I think, were uh, Harvard was very generous in um, its support of Upsolve via pitch competitions and fellowships. And that was really critical for our first couple hundred thousand dollars. And, uh, and, and if we had not had access to, to that funding source, I think it would have been pretty hard, given my lack of network and youth, uh, to be able to find people to support us. Uh, I think after that, we got really lucky that there's something called Blue Ridge Labs, which is a, uh, a impact incubator based in New York, which is dedicated to technology to address um, inequality here in New York. And uh, they were actually one of our first funders. And the Robin Hood Foundation um, is uh, a really well-known name in the philanthropy world. So when we had Robinhood funding us and Harvard funding us uh, as our first two supporters that opened doors. Um, and when we reached out to people, we were always very aggressive in our subject lines saying, Harvard and Robinhood Foundation funded nonprofit. And then <laughs> would open our emails and, um, uh, and, and maybe that would lead to some of our first conversations. Uh, and then, um, but, but I think like really what uh, has led to our 
um, uh, initial success with fundraising has been just effort. I mean, just maximizing the number of conversations we had and uh, that was what enabled us to then get funded by other foundations. And ultimately, the real catalyst where we were able to start growing our team was the federal government. So the federal government has this uh, agency called the Legal Services Corporation. It's this quasi-federal agency. It's fully funded by Congress, but it is an independent nonprofit. And it gives about $500 million each year to brick and mortar traditional legal services nonprofits in America. Uh, so somebody like Barry, a legal aid, or legal service in New York are funded tens of millions of dollars by the Legal Services Corporation. And a portion of the Legal Services Corporation funding since the early 2000s, about $4 million, uh, has gone to technology projects. So we're really uh, lucky that our first six-figure grant actually came from the Legal Services Corporation. And that is what um, uh, really enabled us to then go out and hire engineers and start building a team and transition from project to nonprofit. Although I really do still like to use the word project because a uh, yeah, project can't fail. And it really <laughs> takes the pressure off of us. Uh, and, and it's, you know, really, um, really, really uh, uh, a great word, I think. And, and I still use it with my friends. <laughs> that's, that's super cool. Um, so I noticed that um, a lot of the backers that you will have, whether it's angel investors, foundations, et cetera, they're, they're pretty diverse as people and organizations across government, venture, philanthropy, big corporations. So why do you think there's so much agreement across the, these sectors and across the ideological uh, range that bankruptcy is an important problem? Absolutely. So I think that people realize the richest corporations in America have access to bankruptcy and the richest people in America have access to bankruptcy. There's an entire industry on Wall Street dedicated to restructuring uh, companies that have hit hard times. And uh, I think that when we explain that what we're trying to do at Upsolve is give low-income families access to the same tool that the richest corporations and the richest people in America have access to and have used um, for as long as we remember, that, uh, that that really resonates with financial institutions and wealthier individuals and perhaps even wealthier foundations. So I think that that is one um, part uh, of our pitch that has really resonated with people. I think another is just the extreme quantifiable impact that people get out of bankruptcy. I mean, for three hours of using our product, people increase their net worth by $50,000 from negative. Wow. Back, back to zero and increase there's academic research around improved credit scores improved access to savings credit uh sorry uh, housing uh and uh checking accounts and banking um better access to jobs uh so and, and higher incomes and stop wage garnishment so there's this really amazing quantifiable impact um that we have as well um, so it's part of the narrative and, and the feeling that we're creating this just society uh it's this a uh, sense of uh, uh, quantifiable impact. Um, uh, one other thing that's been very valuable is the fact that we are uh, self-sustaining um, as well. We cover uh, over 50% of all of our costs with earned income. When people arrive at our site, we're not a good fit for our software because they have more complicated cases or um, they actually just prefer an attorney. We ask them if they want to connect with an attorney 
and attorneys pay us uh, for these leads that we generate for them. So that allows us to provide our service for free and continue to grow and be healthy financially as an organization. Um, and then I think uh, ultimately the technology aspect has been really compelling. We are 40% of all bankruptcies done by nonprofits in America are really? done by, already. By, <laughs> already. And, and, wow. And, and in the last uh, year, we've relieved over $50 million in debt. So not only are we the largest um, uh, nonprofit for bankruptcy in the United States, we're the largest by over 10 times. And that is really compelling. And the reason we're able to do that is because we use software rather than the traditional approach. And, uh, and that really resonates with our funders as well. Yeah, that's, those are all really cool. Um, I especially like that point that you made about comparing, giving the resources that big corporations already have and helping low-income people um, to have access to not even like extra, but the same level of help that uh, the wealthy tend to already have. Absolutely. I mean, I think that really appeals to our, our, our sense of what's fair and just in society. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I wanted to chat a little bit about um, a little bit about Upsolve's future expansion plans. Obviously, you all are growing very, very quickly, as you just noted. Um, but like, what are some other things that you're hoping to do in the next three or five years? Sure. So um, I think that Upsolve now has a very good understanding of what it means to help low-income families solve their own legal problems at scale using technology. And uh, we have a really great understanding now about the problems that people who are unrepresented or self-represented um, face when they're navigating the legal system. We understand the stigma. We understand what tools they need. We understand what types of questions they have. And uh, to the extent that through activism and legislation or litigation um, or uh, raising public awareness, we can use this deep understanding to improve the legal system itself, um, I think that would be a really exciting thing. So in addition to our direct service work, we would love to have a seat at the table when it comes to addressing structural inequity within our legal system and ultimately within the American democracy when it comes to making uh, our, our, our system of accessing rights um, more fair for people who can't afford lawyers or who can't access free ones. So I'm not exactly sure what that's going to look like, but, uh, but we, we do think that there is a role for um, activism within Upsolve to supplement and supercharge our uh, direct service work. For sure, that's that's really exciting to hear that y'all are um, thinking about those structural issues and getting to support those efforts as well. And we already think that, uh, I mean, we have shifted power in America. Uh, just look at Google search results. When, when people uh, Google um, how to file for bankruptcy, uh, uh, they now arrive at a oftentimes free service where we explain to them that if they have a simple case that they can file on their own. And we have uh, over a million people visiting our website per year right now. So uh, we have uh, shifted power uh, and, and built power um, to show uh, everyday people in this country that you can actually solve your own legal problem and if you have the right tools and you're the right uh, fit to, to try it on your own and, uh, and we can help you. So we already do think that our uh, direct service work has shifted um, uh, to some degree uh, how uh, this country thinks about uh, the legal system and self-representation. 
and uh, but but we're only one uh, percent of the way to where we want to be. Yeah, absolutely. Google search results is a crazy amount of power in society right now. Right, right, right. That's right. So the next thing related to that is looking at the scalability of the platform. So. Right. Like, I mean, you all already addressed a huge amount of these nonprofit bankruptcies. That number is probably growing. And so, like, is it scalable if, like, this platform becomes the default method for people to deal with these, like, relatively simple bankruptcy cases? And then, like, following that, like, why can't this kind of, like, user-friendly online process just become, like, the government's internal default way to apply for legal aid? So, uh we definitely uh, would love to see a world in which the government uh, takes over UPSOL uh, or, or the government just makes UPSOL part of its own and absorbs it. Uh, there is no better revenue source that I know of than taxpayer dollars. It's more reliable. And, uh, and, and I think that uh, in terms of scale, it's the government incorporates anything that we do for us. That's a huge win. Um, and we already have had a chance to talk to judges running uh, this online service that the government has started to test out, uh, but has not gotten major uptake. And we definitely want to uh, continue to help on that scale. Uh, so to, to your question about what if everybody knew about Upsolve, could this be the default service? And uh, uh, we, we think that there is a day where it could be. Uh, we definitely have a lot of work to do in terms of scaling our own product. That's why we're continuing to hire engineers um, to improve uh, the self-service elements of what we do because there is some manual work that is still required when people have complicated cases um, or some complexity arises after they file and they need some additional forms or they need to change something in a way that our software doesn't permit through self-service right now. Uh, we are going to build those self-service tools and when the court communicates with users, they send court notices to users. And right now we do have a human who is reading those court notices and monitoring them and informing users when there is a uh, issue with their case. And we think that that could be um, automated as well using, uh, or at least sub, uh, uh, automation could help um, assist the human um, in, in tagging maybe where there's a potential case that has a warning and that we need to do something or inform users about. So. We think there's a huge opportunity to continue to improve our product as, as we scale, and, uh, and that's what we're doing right now. Yeah, it's great to see you all looking into automation options because it does seem like with these like super complicated, super intimidating, but fairly standardly written legal documents, like automation can be a great solution there. Absolutely, absolutely. And we never want to use a human, lose a human element of Upsolve because what we've learned about our users is um, by and large, they just want to fix their problem. They don't care about the technology element. They're not excited by the fact that they can do this on their phone. Like that's not what excites them. What excites them is the ability to actually file for bankruptcy and relieve their debt. And uh, so, so we, we definitely like want to figure out how to help them. And um, to the extent that we can automate, that would be great. Um, but, but we realize that our, our users just want to get the outcomes that, that they need. Right, right. The technology just being a tool or like a means of getting there better and being more. That's right. Yep, that's right. Okay, great. So as we're coming up um, towards the end of our time, I do have one final question before the lightning round. Um, so I'm just curious about how you might advise uh, really like mission driven young technologists and like something 
like in terms of various pathways uh, towards success. Like maybe you're a college student or someone in their early career. Um, you like tech. You also want to help reduce income inequality or uh, tackle some other big problem that you're passionate about. Um, these like big complex problems. What's like one piece of advice you might give? Yes, yeah, so I, I think that you should figure out what problem you want to work on and then go and find organizations in that space that are working on that problem. And they might be tech organizations, they might not be, but if you join, you can definitely help them find ways to use software technology to scale their efforts. Um, so that's one definite thing is just figure out the problem you want to work on, the problem that you think you, you could see yourself spending a decade on, and, uh, and then just go and find the organizations doing the work and figure out how you can add value to those organizations. And if the organizations don't seem to um, uh, be in line with what you want to do with your time, then really do start thinking about starting your own thing. I, don't, I think that there could be 10 times as many entrepreneurs in this space. Like we haven't even come close to um, enough nonprofits uh, using innovative ways of uh, addressing like old problems. So uh, I, I think that there's so much room for for, for entrepreneurship um, when it comes to tackling social problems in new ways and never hesitate to start your own thing because you think there's too many organizations already out there. Absolutely. Um, would also love to see more legal innovation. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, so let's get started with our lightning round. Um, again, just one sentence answers. Um, number one, what's the best thing that you've read lately? Uh, the best book I read re recently is Gideon's Trumpet. It's about the uh, case where we have a right to counsel that established the right to counsel in criminal cases in America. Um, who has been inspiring you lately? My parents continue to inspire me. I mean, they are Indian immigrants and very entrepreneurial in the way that they uh, came to this country um, uh, for uh, a better life. And, uh, and really continue to believe so much in the American democracy and the opportunity of people who work hard, do well. And uh, to the extent that we facilitate that at Upsol, um, uh, uh, I, I would love to, I mean, I'm continue to be inspired by them. Of course. And what, what's your big vision for what government could be in 100 years? I would love there to be this new right that exists, which is the right to not need a lawyer in order to solve your own legal problems. Uh, we talk a lot about the right to a lawyer um, in America, but that is not possible for all of the civil legal issues because we just don't have the government financing to support it. So we, if we don't have a right to a lawyer um, in all areas of the law, then I think it's only logical there should be a right to not need one in order to access your your, uh, your rights because the laws are simple enough in that world. And, and I think we can get it done in less than 100 years. That's super cool. Um, well, thank you so much for having this conversation with me today. Um, I learned a lot and I think this is going to be super fascinating. Hey, this is Jasmine again. If you want to learn more about what people are doing to rebuild government, please hit like and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Go to rebuildinggovernment.com or tweet us at rebuildinggovernment. If you care what I have to say, my Twitter is at jasminewsen. I'm always looking for friends and feedback. This podcast is part of the Teske Media Network. You can check out other shows about the world's most impactful and interesting people at teskemedia.com. 
And finally, a big thank you to UNIT Innovations for sponsoring us. UNIT provides technology solutions to governments in order to progress our largest institutions and society. Thank you for listening, everyone. I'll see you next time.